Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, uh, here's the question for today. Home is where? The heart is. No, it's where you contribute to the Double Loop Podcast through Patreon.com to help us uh, keep our website and podcast server running and get some new equipment and you get access to all our old episodes and new content. That's fantastic. And I have one for you. Yeah. Uh, since uh, we are in the uh, time when the movie Bohemian Rhapsody is out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it yet. Oh, not yet. Okay. Uh, so, another one. Bites the Dust. Sorry, I would have accepted Rides the Bus. Oh. <laughs> or another one contributes at patreon.com. Speaking of those, we have a couple new contributors joining our little club. Uh, so big thanks to Lincoln and also to Tatiana uh, for your contributions uh, every month. Gets you, like I said, that access and uh, helps us keep on trucking with our podcast. And, and in fact, on that note, uh, we did get an email regarding the, the last uh, thing that we put up there, where we had a live comparison, you and I back and forth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, so we, you know, started putting that premium content there, and we got an email, and the email was from Natalie in France, and she watched it, and she had a question about. Uh, she said about forty some minutes in, you and I have a quick discussion about uh, blind verification and, and um, additional quality measures and we say something along the lines of you know if this was the 20th late in the case we probably wouldn't necessarily take it through blind verification but being as difficult and complex as it was this is a good one that would be you know blind verification additional documentation and she was a little surprised that we would consider the 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 latent print and how many other latents there are because that seems like you're taking into account contextual information. So we had a nice exchange about that, but I thought we'd have just a moment to address that. Well, absolutely, that's and, a great question. And your uh, your thoughts about um, should you take into account the number of other latents in the case and the number of IDs to a person? What would you have responded? Well, I, I think it comes down to kind of backing up and taking a look at what the purpose of a verification is or the purpose of a blind verification. And in my view, it comes down to a risk management thing. And once you're 20 IDs into the same person uh, on the same item or in the same case, again, maybe if there were 19 IDs to like the outside of the car, but this is the one ID to the gun... Okay, maybe still put it through the, the extra blind verification. But if this is the 20th ID on the same window of the same car, then your risk of error is so low that it doesn't necessarily demand the resources to put it through the extra, the, the extra quality assurance steps. Uh, nearly verbatim, that's exactly what I said. When we didn't talk about this. No, no, get out of my head, man. It, I mean, it's exactly what I said. And I even used the, oh, but, you know, if there were 19 on the outside, or actually I said 9 on the outside and 1 on the inside, then this one now becomes more probative. And so this is the only one I do blind verification on, not the other 9. It was exactly the same example. So, uh, and I thought, I mean, it, it's good to remember that, yes, we're uh, we're cognizant of using contextual information we have to have controls in place for that but at the same time case information can make one more efficient and make good choices about how you work a particular case you just need to be able to uh, account for 
the potential risk of using that information. I, I totally agree. Um, so if you're not entirely <laughs> sure what we're talking about, uh, for our Patreons through for our patrons through Patreon.com, uh, we've put up some uh, extra content in addition to our first hundred or so episodes. Uh, we're also starting to put up extra stuff every week or so uh, that they can watch. And one of them was Glenn and I doing a comparison on screen where we both did our analysis independently and then basically did the compare. We compared our analyses analyses mm-hmm. together and then did the comparison together on screen and just kind of talked the whole time. And um, if, if you're interested in seeing that, like I said, you can go register through Patreon and then on the Patreon site you can watch that uh, that video. On a similar note, um, I had a thought that uh, uh, for some of our listeners that are you know big fans of the of, of the Double Podcast, uh, we have currently one we've dubbed her Superfan, uh, Superfan Becca, that is helping us uh, maintain a presence on uh, Twitter because you know Glenn and I are a couple of old dudes. We don't really get all the newfangled technology, uh, but we want to kind of put it out there for uh, other listeners. So if you can't contribute through Patreon for to our show, but you still want to be you know, part of this extra content, um, if you want to help us out by contributing any kind of artwork or other stuff on that end, if that's more your skill set, or you want to help us run a Facebook page for like a Facebook fan club kind of thing, uh, or you want to go back and listen to old episodes and find all the things that we promised to upload online and just never did, Anything like that, uh, just contact me or Glenn, and uh, we can kind of get you in as a super fan, which gets the same access uh, as our contributors uh, at Patreon. Great idea. Maybe even a student or something out there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Before we move into the main part of the episode, I also wanted uh, to read off a review that we got recently on uh, the W Podcast through Apple Podcasts, I believe. Oh, I think I know how this is going to go. You guys suck. Shut up. <laughs> well, that may have been a review, but I'm just not going to read those on, on the on the on the episode here, Glenn. Um, so uh, this is something also I want to start doing every week. Uh, also, as an encouragement for more people to go out there and and, uh, and put the, and post these online. Uh, so this is from Rem to Have Fun uh, on on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I don't subscribe to many podcasts, but this is one on my list. I very much enjoy the conversing, agreeing, and disagreeing between Glenn and Eric. Oftentimes, I learn about new topics in our field first through this site. I've assigned my trainees to listen to many of the episodes as a training requirement. Thanks, and keep up the good work. That's so, cool. That's oh, really cool. Oh, that's really cool. Well, uh, thanks. Yeah. Rem to, to have, have fun. fun. But remember to have fun? Rem, rem sleep? Like, get, get a good night's oh. sleep to have fun? I, I, no? Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> All right, so with R.E.M., that, the band. Oh, R-E-M but, uh, to yeah, time fun. fun. Okay. Before we move into the interview this week, I want to mention a new sponsor for the Double Loop Podcast, and that's Go Evidence Forensic Laboratories. They're a full-service, independent forensic laboratory that specializes in the development of latent fingerprint evidence. They serve law enforcement, private parties, corporations, private investigators, prosecution, and defense cases. Go Evidence is committed to providing the highest standards of excellence with the most advanced technology available in the industry. Their experienced staff is ready to work with you on any criminal or civil investigation. They're also your direct source to vacuum metal deposition technology. Uh, like in the interview we've done previously with Brian Orr, uh, they can process your cold case evidence with VMD. They provide sales, service, and training. Brian and Scott are passionate about the 
technology and always enjoy the chance to talk about the capabilities of VMD, VMD systems, consumables, and tips on maximizing the process. Standard turnaround times on most cases is only two weeks and consultations are always free. Find out more at goevidence.com. All right, we have a guest tonight, and uh, yes. we're very, very happy to have a guest. And I'm actually here live. I'm I'm at OSAC with Eric. We uh, we have we're in Glenn's uh, hotel room at the resort that's hosting the conference. He's got a golf side view. Uh, it, it's it's the time of year to be here. I'm amazed that they decided to put the the uh, OSAC conference in Phoenix in December. Uh, but they must have gotten a great deal because uh, this has been great. And I've been really impressed with everything I've seen just in the last couple of days. It's been really interesting being kind of on the fringe part of this. And I'll, maybe another episode we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what's going on and some new OSAC updates. However, uh, we should introduce our guest uh, in the series of speakers we've been having uh, with um, uh, Cedric Newman. And we're going to have Christoph Shampo. And now today we are very happy to welcome... Henry Swafford. Hi, Henry. How's it going? I'm pleased to be here. Yep, we are happy to have you. And uh, I met Henry, what, uh, 10 years ago, maybe? Maybe-ish? Right when you were starting. I mean, you were literally still in training. I was down at Army Crime Lab doing some training, and you were just a babe in swaddling clothes, working on comparisons, (laughs) plugging away, plugging away. And, uh, yeah, I, I remember uh, meeting you back then in those uh, early classes, and it's uh, been a wild ride since. So, yeah. welcome. Well, thanks. All right. So, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our listening group, uh, talking about uh, just... Who you are. Just introducing yourself uh, yeah, to the group, uh, who you are, and how you came, like our traditional question, to fall into this world of fingerprints. Yeah, sure. So, I mean... Who am I? That's an interesting question. Uh, I didn't it's expect not that. Be, it's not meant to be metaphysical. Um, it's rather literal. Yeah, so I, I I would say I'm a intellectually curious person, I think is a good way to describe me. Yeah, that's and, um And so how I fell into fingerprints, because I did fall into it. Um, growing up, I always wanted to be a police officer. Okay. And then as yeah. I got... I didn't know that. Yeah, I always wanted to be a police officer. And then I, as I got older, um, I got fascinated with the detective work and the investigations and stuff like that. And so I actually really wanted to be like an FBI agent or one of those federal agents that did that type of stuff. Um, however, you know, a lot of people that, that know me, um, you know, have from birth, I have like a hearing impairment. So all my life I've had some hearing aids. So that's one of the things that as I got older, though, I started realizing might be an issue on the medical to get into to be an FBI agent, for example. Mm. And so against that kind of backdrop, um, as I was a sophomore in high school, I had to do a science fair project. And so someone, the teacher suggested I look at fingerprints or something as my science project. And I was like, ah, OK. So I went ahead and, and I, I started looking into fingerprints. And he said, it's kind of police related. You know, that you'll, you'll like that. So I look into fingerprints, and then I um, reach out to the uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which was our state agency in Georgia, and ask them, and essentially said, I'd like to do a, a study on whether there's dependencies between the finger and ethnicity. Um, I clearly didn't do all of my research, because later I found out that the research had already been done like way back when. 100 years ago or so. 100 years ago <laughs> or so, yeah, you know, but it's good to reproduce stuff. Right. So I embarked on this study, and they... Um, it was great. I, I requested the, the fingerprint records, was 
told them exactly what I wanted to do. They invited me up. I got a tour of the, the crime lab up there in the Leighton section. And then they actually agreed to release in an anonymous fashion a series of fingerprints for me, which um, was fascinating. Was I, I really appreciated their willingness to do that. Um, so I did my study, and it was a very small sample set. Um, just looked at what was the ethnicity, what was a finger, and what was the um, the pattern type that occurred. I just classified it the pattern type. Um, one of the requirements, though, for that study was that I had to deliver my report back to them. Okay. And so I delivered it back to them, and they invited me. And so, well, why don't you why don't you come and present this at our local IAI conference um, at Georgia? So everyone from the Georgia IAI they've known me since I've been a baby, essentially. <laughs> and so I was, you know, I went ahead and presented it, and then they from there I was able to make some contacts, and they said, you know, what you're doing is great. I think, you know, the the the, the fact that you have somebody interested in fingerprints and willing to kind of embark in a voluntary fashion for research, which I've come to learn is a huge asset for our field. Um, they gave me a lot of encouragement and I started an internship, uh, kind of a made up internship with the Athens Clark County Police Department. And they said, you come over, you sit in the closet and you look at the fingerprints and then we'll, we'll call it an internship and we'll show you around and we'll just kind of make an internship for you. So I did that and went from a 4,000, 400 person record, 4,000 total fingerprints to um, 2,000 person sample of 20,000 fingerprints and essentially reproduced them to see if I was getting similar results of my kind of preliminary study from the records from the uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Related to the uh, same, ethnicity, yeah. right? Correct, ethnicity and, and, and finger. And so I did that study and, and then I became a little bit ambitious and a little bit hard-headed and I took my research materials and, and literally went and started contacting police chiefs to try to get an intern, another internship or an apprenticeship or something. Now, this I got, is in high school still? This is in high school, yep. I got turned down a, a number of times. And then I reached out to the GBI and I said, I'd like an internship. And they said, well, you know, there's certain certain issues. Or, you know, it has nothing to do with you. But right now there's some issues where you, you know, essentially they had an apprenticeship relationship with the county school systems where the headquarters was at the time. And I said, well, I don't like that rule. And well, I said, well, it is what that's, it is. That's so Henry, though. No, yeah. Knowing you now, that's that's just so you. Well, I don't, I don't like that rule. I'm going to just. I don't, I don't it. like it. Yeah, right. I don't like it. So I sent them a copy of their policy back, and I highlighted the bottom. It said exceptions can be made by the director. I've learned that's not the most effective way to win friends and influence people. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, at that time, the director of the GBI, whom I met when I started the study, got appointed by the governor to move over to um, uh, to take on the Board of Pardons and Paroles okay. for the state. And then the a new acting director came up, and I had no clue who this, who this gentleman was. But anyways, um, with that in mind, I continued to shop around, and I went to this one police department, this local city police department, with my book. And I said, I'd like to speak with your police chief. And this one chief called me in and said, sure, give me your spill. I said, I've got information that will help you solve crimes better or, or something to that effect. And so he looked at me and he just said, and he happened to be at that time the, the president of the Georgia Association of Chiefs of Police. And he said, why don't you join us for our conference? And I'll introduce you to people. And I was like, sure. So I, I joined him, and he was giving kind of a, a, a nice spill of re encouraging people to support our young young people that are interesting and capitalize on that. At that point, he kind of introduced me to some folks, and then the networks worked. And then essentially, I went back to the GBI and said, I still don't like your policy. And they said, well, we're still not going to change it for you. However, we do have a current opening 
um, in our evidence receiving section if this is something that you might be interested in doing and will part time. So I started and I, I did it. So I went through the background check and I took the job. So I started working part time at the GBI when I was um, uh, 17. So that was my first introduction wow. to forensics. Well, wow. I think that's the earliest yeah, person we've interviewed that, the, of, of, I mean, maybe yeah. interest beforehand, but actually getting a job at a police agency that we've interviewed. Extremely yeah. fortunate. I would not advise going about it the way I did. However, <laughs> I would say with that, though, if you're interested in something, goodness, just keep, keep be persistent on it. Yeah. But yeah, so I started in their evidence receiving section. They knew I wanted to move the fingerprints. It took me about three and a half or four years, maybe. And then finally, they had an opening up there, and I, as a processing technician, so I didn't do any examinations. Um, I did that, and then now it brings us to about 2007, 2008, with the economic collapse across the, uh, well, the country. Were you going to college at the same time? Yep, yep, going okay. to college. I went to college at Georgia State University. Um, I have very little recollection of it because I was either working or studying all the time, right. um, which kept me out of trouble, thankfully. <laughs> And um, so, yeah, I went to college the whole time. The the GBI was very, very accommodating of the schedule. Um, I just worked a lot on certain days and then went to pile my classes on the other days. Uh, Graduated in 2008 with my bachelor's uh, science degree in biology with a minor in chemistry. Um, And then the economic collapse happens, happens essentially. And at that time, the, the state had a really got hit hard as a number of different states did in their right, budgets. Right. And so there was a, the question was, are they going to have a ex- analyst position open? Um, and at the same time, uh, the army crime lab, which was literally about 10 miles down the street had a position open. So I thought, well, I, I need to, let me apply for it. I was strongly encouraged by a lot of uh, colleagues to apply for it. And I did. And then, um, I got the job. So I came in as an entry level, um, fingerprint examiner, and that's where I met Glenn, learning what I was doing. Who, well, goodness knows what he probably thought of me at that time. Let me let me ask you a little question on the on that uh, transfer. So, I mean, you knew you wanted to go into fingerprints eventually. That whole time you were doing the evidence uh, receiving stuff, right? Yes, because I started when I did the study on fingerprints. I started realizing this is how I can contribute to the broader criminal justice enterprise right. in my my own way. And I started really in, getting into it. So Glenn and I were, were actually talking the other day just here at the conference about how how quickly we realized once we start started looking at friction ridges and comparing fingerprints, how much we enjoyed doing that and how much that kind of drove us to just dive headlong into that field. Granted, that was already basically right when or right after we got hired to be fingerprint examiners. Were, were you doing any, just in all that initial research work, any comparisons or any looking at ridge detail? Was it just the general interest in the field or was it just actually looking at these little fingerprint puzzles that kind of attracted you into it? The the science project is really what got me into it. When I started looking at all the fingers, it became like a little puzzle for me. Right. So fingerprints came first and then the fun of the puzzle came second. And yeah, so when I was doing the evidence receiving stuff, um, on wherever there was opportunities, I always just um, saved up my money and self-funded me to go to the local conferences, um, uh, got to know people, got to um, uh, presented my you know next set of research a, a couple times in the local areas, and I made my interest known. I put my little certificates on my wall and my little mini cubicle on the side, and so there was very clear of what my inter- interests were. Right. Um, well, I think that's that's really 
great story for any listeners out there that are in school and have started listening to the podcast because they have an interest in forensics in general. They have an interest in, they want to get into fingerprints. Not necessarily that exact path, but of the persistence of getting into a police agency at, at, at some level and then getting to conferences, networking, meeting people, uh, because it is a difficult field to get hired into because uh, there's just so many applicants versus the openings. Uh, but man, that is what, that is definitely a great way. If you know that that's your interest so early on, the way to get in. I was very fortunate to know what I was interested in. That's I realize that now. You know, you said a few minutes ago you you met me and you you didn't know what I thought of you. I don't think we've ever actually talked about this. <laughs> I actually did have a perception of you. I and you please correct me if I'm wrong. I I I, I watched you do comparisons. And it didn't seem to me like you actually enjoyed the the comparison so much or the casework aspect. You liked big picture stuff, theory. You really liked the research aspect and the data. And you seemed very driven by big picture ideas, but not so much like the workings of casework and the comparison. Am I way off on that? I mean, it, just, it was just an observation watching you or do the different exercises and what you really seem to light up about and what you seem to go, oh, all right, fine. I'll so, take my magnifier and I'll do this, whatever. So it's funny that you say that because if you were to tell me that at the time, and I have, you're not the first one to tell me that, and and the first one to tell me that, I was like, no, you're totally wrong. You don't mm-hmm. understand me. And then over time, and, and, and you're not the second one either that's told me that, but it's funny when I, over time, when I've, you know, I've dabbled in a lot of different roles within the, the the confines of what is you know fingerprint examination, and it is the all of you guys are right. Hmm. It's funny when you reflect back. Yeah, and we've never talked about that. It was just, and I only you know talked in forty hours or whatever. But I just I could I mean, I've, I've had enough students at that time where you could begin to see. All right, this one loves the comparisons. This one likes a challenging latent. You were more, let me just get through these exercises. <laughs> but you had great questions about the theory and what, oh, has anyone looked at this or has anyone done this research or Ooh, what about these data? And, well, uh, could you look at the data this way or that way? And, and, and you were, you, your eyes would light up and you had all these great <laughs> questions. We talked during break and after class, but it was never about like the comparison aspect. You are absolutely right. And that's why, coincidentally, that you bring that up, uh, I think it's that's why I would classify myself as a intellectually curious person is yeah. the best way to define me. Yeah, I mean, I, that makes sense. It just it fit with my observations you know, 10 Funny. years ago. <laughs> All right, so Henry, um, take us a little bit through, just briefly, because we want to get to the, the FR stat. And everyone who's you know already a practitioner knows that we're going to talk to you about FR stat. So <laughs> if you don't know what FR stat is, we'll explain that here in a little bit. But uh, kind of briefly walk us through your, your career path through the Army Crime Lab. In uh, one minute or less. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So in, in one minute or less, I came in as, a, as an examiner. I, I got trained as a traditional fingerprint examiner. Um, as Glenn mentioned, you know, I, I, I really liked doing that. Um, but then in 2010, uh, there was an opportunity to get expand on more research stuff. And then I found that I really loved doing that. Um, so in uh, 2010, I uh, wore the extra hat of research coordinator for the latent print branch uh, at the Army Crime Lab and used that as an opportunity to try to 
uh, just expand in a number of different ways on research and you know without any any strategy of where that was going to take me what were the issues that we saw at the same time I was trying to learn as much as I could this is important to note here because I was trained as a fingerprint analyst and I believe as a fingerprint analyst and then during this time when I was doing the research I also had the opportunity to get a master's degree through the Department of Defense mm -hmm. but that master's degree afforded me the opportunity to learn about what Le University of Lausanne was doing yes and it was and so I had the a very go to Switzerland had a very no. rare opportunity to go to Switzerland and spend a month there and they said see what they're doing and just kind of learn which I was a kid in a candy store yeah so I learned and I remember distinctly that I realized that what I had been told as a examiner there was a missing piece there and I evolved in my perspective and my perception of a lot of things and a lot dealing with interpretation and reporting. Yeah, and all of that stuff is left out of traditional forensic teaching in the United States. And when you go over to Europe, especially Lausanne, they really focus on the interpretation of evidence and what that means and probabilistic reasoning and inference and all those things that get left out here of, well, you have a known and you have an unknown. You compare them and you make a decision. It, it, it's missing that piece, and you're absolutely right. That's exactly what they're going to focus on. And once that opens up for you, it's like a whole new world. Yep. So I was in that new world, and it's important to put that in, into context here because then I come back, and then in 2014, um, they asked if I would be willing to, to serve as a quality manager for the entire laboratory, which gave me some accreditation perspective to a lot of stuff as well. And I did that for a short time because then there was an um, – uh, the they posted for their branch chief, and I was you know I applied for that job and ended up getting it. So now I'm chief. which is crazy given how young you are, which is nuts. Yeah, and, and you're still relatively new at the army, which is like, nuts. This happened yeah. in 2014, so you know it was you know what was it almost five years ago at this point, and at that point I remember having this odd feeling of oh wow, now I've actually <laughs> got to do something. Yeah. Yeah. And so that leads into the development of the FR status and the decision to move in that direction. You're now in a position of power to change yep. something, the ability to actually make change. Yep, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So there's one big thing before we get into the FR stat that, that occurred right before basically that or while you were working on it, and that was your decision to... Get married? <laughs> no, bigger decision. Oh, okay. Even bigger decision <laughs> to abandon the term identification. Uh, it, it, can you give us kind of a, uh, a background of why your lab decided to stop reporting the term identification when you associate a latent to a specific known and, and instead what, what language you guys chose to start using? Yeah, so um, this comes right after I got the uh, got the new position and I realized I can't just simply wait for the, the world to change. I've got to change it if I feel like it needs to be changed in a certain way. And I took that position also with trying to drive a different culture uh, within the laboratory, what I could control. And that is, if you made a mistake, historically, we would just say, well, you, you're, you, you, you can't be an analyst. So I was trying to strive to drive the culture that I will give you top cover. I will protect you. I will give you top cover. But this also means that we've got to make sure that if I'm giving you top cover, we've got to make sure that we're doing the work in a in, in a uh, in a very robust fashion and what we articulate because that was also at the time in 2014 still a very hot topic of what the claims we were making in court 
and we've got to make sure that we're doing it in a in a manner that I call more compatible with scientific logic and theory. Um, and so we had some discussions about whether the claims that we make with identification, meaning they, the two impressions came from the same source, is this something that we can substantiate with some sort of tangible um, uh, information that I can point to. And we had a lot of discussion about this. Really? A lot of discussion. <laughs> um, there was um, um, there was a lot of discussion. I'll put it that way. Fair enough. But it was but it was good. Um, but that was essentially what I was looking at. I was looking at it from the perspective of if you, as long as what you're saying and how you're articulating, if I'll, I'll give you top cover. But if you go out and you expand on that and you make claims that we can't necessarily support. You know, I, I can't protect, I can't cover you. So a lot of this onus was making sure that we're arming the analysts that, that, that do the work day in and day out. And we as a laboratory system are providing that cover for them. So what was the wording that you guys chose to use instead of identification? So we, we, we classified it under this broad class of what we refer to as an association you associate two impressions on the basis of the corresponding ridge detail. So with that being said, we would report something along the lines of the two impressions have corresponding ridge detail. The likelihood of observing this amount of correspondence when two impressions originate from different sources is considered to be extremely low. Then that is what leads into FR stat because you wanted to say something else besides extremely low. You wanted to actually give some sort of helpful... Put a number on it. Number. Yep, correct. That would not only put a number on it, but also allow you to differentiate between extremely low, like super extremely low, because there's just no chance because this this uh, association is super good, and then the, eh, this is this is also extremely low, but it's kind of on the, you know, it barely qualifies to that extremely low category. Yeah, yeah, you're correct. So... I was focused on a culture change, number one. Right. I was focused on, number one, getting the, the, our analyst and our, our system used to a new way of reporting without kind of, I didn't want to drive the car zero to 60, although some might have felt it was a zero to 60. Um, but I wanted to, this was a, this was a broader strategy that I, I, I had in mind that I had intended to. And our end goal was to provide some sort of empirical substantiation to support the claims we made. That was the end objective. We didn't have that at that time, but I also knew, or in my opinion, that doesn't, um, that doesn't give us a, carte blanche essentially to just continue to do things in a way that I felt were not necessarily the most appropriate way to go forward according to my perspective of it. So this was a stepwise fashion. We changed to the association wording. Um, we provided a significant amount of training and discussion on this to get the uh, essentially to cater to the get our analysts comfortable operating in a in a probabilistic framework. Once we did that, then it became a, a, an easier transition. There were still its own challenges, but an easier transition to then integrating uh, uh, statistics to that wording. So, uh, FR stat. Uh, no, wait, that, just as an aside, that wasn't the original name. It was originally like uh, Defiki? Defiki, yeah, yeah, oh, Defiki. Yeah, so I remember that because it rhymed with Defiki, and I thought that was really a crappy name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our first stat, I think, is is an improvement over Defiki, but. Um, 
So what's funny is that the, the DeFiki stood for Defense Fingerprint Image Quality Index, or this effort started as doing a quality module. Okay. And and then around that time when we were working on it, UOW came out, and I looked at it and was like, oh, this looks cool. And and then around the same time, I, for, I cannot remember why, but then we switched gears and we decided let's 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 try to make a model to to to, to provide some sort of empirical substantiation to the comparison aspect right. of it, um, and that's when we moved over and focused um, uh, very all of our efforts on that aspect of the of the of the the model. Now that being said, it's two separate algorithms, two separate components that can be wrapped up into a single package. It the, can the be. quality and the... And the similarity, similarity, yeah, that can be. Right now, we focus very heavy on the development and validation of the similarity. The quality one is something that I still intend to um, to, to kind of put a bow on top and wrap up. But the majority of the work is done. We just need to do a little bit more. So we just need to put the bow on. Right, okay. Yeah, and then integrate it into a single package. Well, let's let's go through... I think that the, the good order of, of approaching FR stat is... Let's start if um, take an examiner from the Army Crime Lab. Uh, they get a case in. How how does uh, how does FR Stat enter enter into uh, what they do? So we'll kind of go through what they do as normal comparison process. How FR Stat comes into play. What they do to get it in there, and then we'll kind of go into some of the weeds of what FR Stat's doing and stuff like that. But, and how it differs from other models that right, we've been right. discussing. But from just an examiner perspective, what do they see as they're entering into this new world? Sure, we considered the the integration of FR Stat as an extension of our existing methodology. Okay. This is the intent was never for a a system to overtake the human or the human to overtake the system. This was a synergy relationship. Um, so what that means is that the analyst will do the same ACEV methodology they've always done. Okay. They'll still do their analysis, detect their, the information they observed in analysis, document that information. Um, inclusive of that information is level two features, such as minutia, reg endings, bifurcations, and so forth. And then they'll proceed, um, do their comparison do their uh, evaluation so they have the annotated um, information, what they believe to correspond. At this point, just like most examiners would then opine identification perhaps, our analysts would then opine essentially um, association, whatever the the strongest conclusion we we had there. And then they would go and get it verified. And verification was a reapplication of the ACE process where most laboratories would then report we then tacked on this caboose of FR stat. So then once it was verified, then we said, okay, now we, we want to provide, run it through FR stat. And if you get a, um, a statistical result that was, that was exceeded the quality, the predefined threshold within our, our system, uh, then you report that out as an association. But and with, and with that number, with that's that above number the as the strength, right. so we wanted to provide, we wanted to one provide the empirical substantiation, and two be transparent of the 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 significance of the evidence in the context of the sample at hand for the case at hand. So in this process, who actually runs the fingerprint through FR Stat? The original examiner, the verifier, both. Do they consensus the minutia that go through it? How does that work? Because, I mean, obviously one of the, the things that comes up in all these models is, well, if one guy runs 16 points through and the other guy runs 8 points, they get a different number. So how does that get reconciled, or do you just 
you know, just default to the original examiner in the case. Yeah, so that was a um, a lot of discussion went around how to handle that. Yeah. And there's no right answer. Yeah. There's no right or wrong answer for it. Ultimately, um, recognizing that FR stat evaluates the similarity of configure two configurations of features is driven by the expert. The expert is the one that does the initial interpretation of the features and also in that interpretation what is the xy coordinates and the angle of such feature. FR stat reads what the analyst tells it to read. In, in effect, it's an interpret it's it's a representation, it's a statistic that represents that analyst's interpretation of the ridge detail, right? Yes, it's, yes. And okay. so I, I make no claim that it's an objective process. It's driven by this human, and therefore those interpretations of what they've annotated as a feature and in that particular location and in that with that particular angle is an opinion or interpretation of that analyst. Yeah. For that reason we decided to default back to we run what the original case analyst did because if they need to go to court and testify, they can testify to their original observations and interpretations. Makes sense. Okay. So a little clarification here because you have your initial analysis markup of where all the points that you see are. And uh, then once uh, the comparison happens, during comparison... Well, now that you have a second representation of that friction ridge detail with uh, with the exemplar, you may move or you may reevaluate. Like, oh, I think this is actually an ending instead of bifurcation. And and when I do comparisons anyway, and Glenn and I talked about this in our special uh, Patreon only content about he prefers just to leave things where they are initially. Uh, I prefer to move them, but have that documentation that I moved it, making so, adjustments, making adjustments to show. To, to, so that they're both on the same feature in the same way. Which, which kind of version of all those points goes through the model? So you're highlighting an issue that is also a, a, was a significant topic of discussion because no, recognizing that a limitation of the model is that it's, it only sees what the analyst tells it to see. Right. Um, there's a potential for uh, cognitive or contextual or whatever biases that, that could influence how you annotate that feature. So we had to have an very strict um, policy and procedures in place to prevent or at least mitigate to the extent possible um, the influence of of these biases in the overall statistical result that you get. So one approach that we took was we had a very strict linear ACE documentation process. So we allowed ACE to operate in a cyclical fashion, but we documented linearly. What I mean by that is we were we required the analyst to document the features that they see in the way they interpret them during analysis before right. they ever see an exemplar. Like most right. several agencies will do that, and then when they get to comparison, they'll do their comparison. And here's the kicker: if they interpret during comparison that the feature occurred in the same or within an acceptable um, range of XY location such that their annotation from the comparison uh, overlapped their annotation from analysis, we consider that that's a qualified feature you can now move, push into the software. So if I interpreted a feature during analysis and then during comparison I realized, oh, it actually occurs over here and the features don't overlap, 
then that means that there's evidence that after seeing the exemplar, my interpretation of the specific location of that feature has now changed. I don't know whether that I've been biased now or, right. or just simply second looking at it. I looked at it again. We would not let that feature into the, the software. Now, when you said overlap, it sounds like what you're doing during comparison isn't just moving the features from analysis if necessary. It sounds like you're replotting all the features. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, we documented linearly. We're replotting totally. So there's very clear what we saw and how we saw it during analysis, what we saw, how we saw it during comparison. And then if it's if it's this basically the if it's basically a feature in the same spot in both of them, then, then it, it can go through. Then it was considered a qualified feature for entry. And you, you, it's like maybe like a ridge, ridge and a half, something like that. It was roughly a um, roughly the width was about the width of a ridge. Okay. Yeah, and that's about what you might expect. Just typical variation of, of plotting to be roughly kind of like half a millimeter in one way or another. Right. Right. Uh, talk now next about uh, what the model's doing. So essentially, you know, you, you have it's measuring the similarity of those XY coordinates and the direction of all the tails of what direction the miniature are pointing, and then coming up with a uh, a similarity score. But can you talk a little bit more about how it does all that? Yeah, sure. So so one of the what I consider to be a benefit of this is that the you know the team that that developed this. Um, we were looking at this from the practitioner perspective also. So the essentially, the analyst marks the features that they believe to correspond that has some sort of constellation to it or some configuration to it. Theoretically, if this was a perfect match, those that constellation or that, that configuration would be a perfect match on top of one another, correct? Right, right. Just, just like an overlay, like a... A transparency for us old guys. Uh, you, know, you lay laid on top of uh, of everything, so every dot is in the same place, uh, every tail's pointing the exact same direction. It just basically covers up the latent with the note. Exactly. Like CSI. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it so it, it operating in that kind of way, and in a way that that's what analysts are doing. We're looking at kind of the similarities, and then we're evaluating are the differences we're observing out of tolerance, or are they in from, are they so different that they might lead us to believe it came from a different source? So, anyways, I've with that background that I, I give you that because of what the software is doing is this is calculating what is this effectively as a distance metric. What is the difference between the configurations of features? conceptually as if you're overlaying it. Behind the scenes, it's actually uh, much more complicated how it goes about doing this um, because it also understands in the context of friction ridge impressions that you might have different movement of features in different regions of fingerprints um, based on just the physiology of the skin and the physics of the deposition. So the, the the algorithm is actually taking that into account. So Conceptually, it's measuring the similarity of the of the of the features in terms of what is the distance between the two features, how much have they moved, and then what is the angle difference between the features, what is how much they have the, the angle moved, and then it provides context to that with a um, uh, a scoring function in the background, and then that scoring function provides context to the the amount of movement, whether it's typical variation one might expect to observe among same source impressions. Or, or or not, and to what extent is it not um, consistent with that? And then it combines or summarizes the similarity for the entire configuration of features into a single similarity statistic, or the, a GSS value, which is synonymous with the score. 
So the similarity of the entire configuration is summarized as a score with this algorithm. It's a unitless value. Looking at that score by itself uh, doesn't tell you anything. You have to evaluate what's the significance of this score and the context of scores that we have taken or, or have resulted from measurements of same source impressions and different source impressions. All right, so another way that we might think of that is you have a bunch of test data and you ran all these prints from the same person and got scores, and then you ran all these prints from different people and got a set of scores. And these two sets of scores are very different. And in very simplistic terms, so if you run a case latent print through the model and you get one score, you look and see is that score more likely to fit in the same source distribution scores or the different source distribution scores. And you can do a probability for both and do a ratio Correct. of the two. Correct. So, it, so you're, you're comparing it to these test data where you've run other impressions and now we're essentially asking the question, the score for this latent in this case, is it more similar to these other scores from the same person or these other scores from different people? Correct. There you go. Very simple. I mean, well, it's, it's not. No, I mean, it's actually yeah. it's very elegant. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's simple to explain. Yeah. And so, what matters is how does that score fit in with all of your test data? Yeah. And I think one of the limitations we explored with Cedric when we were talking before is the one of the limitations. It's it's static because it's based on the data you've already run before, right? I mean. I, I don't know how many test subjects you ran in both distributions. Correct, yeah. Uh, it would have been a statistically significant uh, grouping, I would imagine. Yeah. But it's limited to whatever you ran before. Yep. Right? Yep. Okay. Yeah. And and are they all fingers that you ran before? Yeah, we focused on the so we focused on the fingers, but on the different source distribution. So we had two. We had an end objective here for the different source distribution of scores. We wanted to isolate it to the region of friction ridge skin, which would maximize the scores. So we wanted the region of friction ridge skin, which has the highest potential for uh, coincidental matches. Okay. All right. So deltas and deltas, type lines, and things yep. like that. Correct. Yeah. yeah okay. Correct. But basically, deltas are on thumbs, right? To, to keep it systematic, we kept it on deltas on thumbs, okay. and we considered, and we did a little bit of preliminary, and this is detailed in kind of the the, the full publication, uh, our technical report. But we we considered the deltas be representative of the areas yeah. um, that had the highest potential for finding two prints paired together the highest similarity scores. All right. So a question that I've been asked before, you know, and, and actually I get asked this for all the models: What if I have a palm print? What if you have a palm print? <laughs> sure. There's some general assumptions that are made. And the assumption essentially is, is that, and it's much like the assumptions we make today in practice and we have for the last hundred years, that friction ridge skin is formed following similar parameters. Now, because we we focused on the region of friction ridge skin, which we propose to be that area on different source impressions that maximizes the chances of a coincidental match, we propose that the system is applicable for any region of friction ridge skin. Mm. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, let's say you ran a set of palms, though. I mean, those distribution scores could be pretty different. I mean, potentially. I mean, I mean, if you ran, you know, uh, features in the hypothenar and got a set of scores, um, they might actually, compared to your different source distribution, they actually might even be wider. I mean, or they could be closer. I mean, those distribution, the, the amount of overlap between those distributions, I think you guys are, that's a big thing you guys are assuming 
it's going to be about the same. We propose that it's going to be about the same or the, or the difference will be greater. The other thing to keep in mind here is that the focus of this is to provide the, a tool for the analyst to provide some in, some sort of empirical substantiation right, for right. their result. And and this is not this was never designed to be this is the well first of all it doesn't exist. It, it doesn't exist to have anything to say this is the probability. Yeah, and 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 that is a really good point and you've been very consistent with that message. This is not the probability of these characteristics appearing. This is a score that represents some similarity or difference. It's not the random match probability. You guys have been really clear about that, but I think, again, it's easy. People don't know this stuff to, to confuse that. Sure. It's a tool that says, here's how similar or dissimilar these two images are yeah. based on our data set. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, the same premise of applying it to poems that we we don't see any concern with applying the concept of measuring similarity of friction rich skin features and evaluating is this within the range of similarity we might expect from common source impressions or different source impressions we propose that it's um it's a reasonable assumption to make especially in the ranges that you're dealing with here because one of the limitations we haven't talked about is that this model only works uh from five to 15 minutiae yeah correct so especially in that range i mean it, it may start to to diverge um up higher but in that range of an average five to fifteen minutia in a finger versus five to fifteen minutia in the palm I, I i mean i personally wouldn't expect and haven't seen anything to lead me to suspect that it would be significantly different than from finger to palm what oh. i mean what's the foundation for us to use finger for use palm prints and today I mean, it's a very good question because ultimately what we want to know are, are the distribution of minutia different in the palms or finger joints or fingertips or sides and so forth. And there is this emerging data that we're seeing from Switzerland where they've looked at uh, palm data, um, like uh, uh, minutia around deltas and palms, and they've looked at finger joint data. And they have seen that the distributions are a little different in these areas. They're not exactly like the fingers. And so one could imagine that it could actually affect some of the scores uh, in this kind of model or any kind of model. And this is why people have said, well, we, need, we'll, we really will need a, a different kind of model for the palms or any other area, uh, toes, soles, whatever, to be the basis. Now, if we run them through those kinds of models and all the numbers are exactly the same, okay, well, then we show that there isn't that much different. But already these early data uh, that are coming out of these experiments are showing that there are subtle differences, different proportions of ridge endings versus bifurcations in their orientation and how they interact with other features. So the distributions are, are, are a little different. The, the distributions on the friction skin seem to be a little bit different. Yeah. The question would be when that information is evaluated in the context of how the model evaluates it, whether that's FRSTAT or any other model, mm-hmm. um, when it summarizes that information into its statistic into value, score, right. does the distribution of the statistic values, which is just, just a very, very broad summary of that information, uh, really, just a broad summary of the similarity. Does that significantly change That's... the distribution of the scores, which is very different right. for the listeners to realize, and the dis- how the minutiae are distributed throughout the finger or that part of the impression? Yeah, and That's so good. That's a good point. 
So it's something that I, 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 I encourage the, you know, we, we continue to need to research. However, I would propose that there's um, foundationally uh, sufficient support to use the system in the context of palms in the same way that we propose there's sufficient support to conduct friction ridge examinations in the palms as well as the finger uh, tips and the joints and so forth as well. And I would even add on to that that the model is based around this is a minimum score, uh, the probability, the ratio between these two things. And with that is all in many cases likely actually higher, but we based the score around deltas in thumbs. And you would get a higher score, theoretically, if the non-matching ones were in a different area of the finger. So then I would suggest that it's likely that the differences in the different areas of the palm are more significant, and the differences between the areas of the finger are more significant than the overall differences between fingers and palms. That there's there's outflow, there's type lines, there's deltas, that's going to be very different than other just straight areas you're exactly right and and, and in statistics some people will call that you're you're evaluating the information under least favorable conditions and so in a way what we've done is we've isolated the different source distribution to be focused only on the delta region and the other part of that is we let a we let an algorithm choose what was the closest correspondence of features so we would mark uh, or X number of features would be marked on one impression, say say nine features or something, and then another separate, well-published-on algorithm would then search the closest correspondence of those, those nine features against uh, a lot of other features marked on the impression in that general region, and it would allow the system in the background to flip the impressions around, move it around. So this is something done as if, like, with absolutely no analyst intervention in the in the comparison. So under any condition of rotation and translation, um, we allowed that algorithm to kind of find the least favorable conditions for creating the distribution of similarity scores for the different source population or sample. Well, this leads right into one of the the criticisms that that I saw reading the paper and that we actually discussed with uh, Cedric in the previous episode with those least favorable conditions. So my initial thought was that, well, in least favorable conditions, you would want to try to bring those two peaks as close as possible together. And one way of doing so would be to make the non-matching peak based on close non-matches. But when you guys developed that non-matching peak, it was based on random non-matches. So can you kind of talk about why that choice was made? In many other areas, you guys did go for least favorable conditions, mm-hmm. but in this one aspect, you didn't. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good observation there. It comes down to you're taking a sample from a population, and the, can, the, and the sample is what is the population you're attempting to model? Is the population we're attempting to model only those close that subset of a broader population of only close non-match impressions? Are we, and another way of putting that is, are we trying to create a model to support uh, a claim of uniqueness or individualization, or are we trying to take a sample from this broad, broad population of friction ridge skin impressions in general and provide some sort of statistical measure of the significance of this impression within the broader context of friction ridge skin at large? We were focused on the latter. 
we were focused on providing some sort of empirical substantiation within the context of the population of friction of similarity scores derived from friction ridge impressions at large coming from different source impressions. So when you ask that question of why didn't you do this, it comes back to what is the what is the population we're attempting to make inferences about from a sample thereof. And that's what you have to you have to know the answer to that to know the parameters of how you're sampling. The reason I was even asking about palms is we have had a listener, Lincoln, who I think recent uh, Patreon subscriber was asking about palm prints and was asking exactly the, these questions. So that's that's why it led in nicely to that. And um, he says that his thought process behind this is as follows. In general, palms have a larger surface area than fingers. And with greater surface area, there could be the potential for differential growth, more unique random ridge events. And how do these features in the palms... Um, differ in their statistical weight from fingers. So it was nice to have this little discussion about that. And and I think as you're pointing out, that's not what this model is designed to do. This model is designed to measure similarity between images, essentially. I mean, right. Right, not not evaluate the discriminability of the feature set at all. Right. Yep. That's 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 con- that's taken into account in a random match probability. That's a very those are very different statistics. Right. In an ideal scenario like DNA, we want to strive towards ask, answering this question: What is the probability of observing this specific configuration of features within the broader population? FRStat doesn't do that. Right. FRStat measures similarity. And then summarizes the correspondence and says, what's the probability of observing this similarity score uh-huh. or more extreme within the broader context of similarity scores? And so what in that significantly, the, the statistical result is actually a significant understatement of the true weight of the evidence. The problem is, in my opinion, that's not enough for us to say, hey, don't use anything at all. Right. It provides something. And it's, remember that when yeah. this project started, our end goal was to provide something tangible that the analyst can point to when they go to court and give them that top cover and help them and say, not only do I have my um, knowledge, skills, training, and experience, but I've also taken an empirical measurement, something that I can point to and say, in addition to my um, my training and experience, here's some empirical substantiation to support the claims that I'm making and the why I formed the opinion that I did. Yeah, and, and that, that makes sense because when an examiner says these things, quote-unquote, match, they look the same to me or they look within tolerance to me or they correspond, All that's all we can say is to describe they correspond but your model gives them a measurement of what that correspondence means and the significance of the degree of correspondence between those two images. Yep. It allows you to articulate that this evidence sample that was just, there was so much a wealth of information here, and you can now see it with the measurements. And the other thing I want to point out here is, you know, when you're, when you're summarizing the correspondence between the features and all that you get out is a similarity score, you can have a variety of different configurations of features that you can pair together and get the same score. So keep in mind here that this is condensing so much information, the high dimensional space down into this single similarity statistic, yep. and it's still able to show uh, quite impressive separation between the broader um, sample uh, that we propose to be representative of a, broad, of a broader population of different source impressions and same source impressions. It's kind of a representative here of the community. I wanted to, to ask a couple other things that I've heard people talk about as, well, how do you, you know, what about this, what about this? And one of the ones I hear all, all the time is, well, every time that 
different people mark up the same comparison, it's going to be slightly different, which can greatly affect the scores. I know we talked about earlier about the procedures. You guys have a really strict procedures as to which marked up features get used in this model. But how would you respond to, well, you know, you search it one day, you search it, your coworker searches it the next day or runs it through the model the next day, and the scores can be pretty different? Or do you, have you seen them be relatively the same? Or All right, Henry, before you answer that question, hold up, just wait one second, a quick word from our sponsor. And we'd like to thank our sponsor for this half of the podcast is Idemia, the global leader in augmented identity. Their technology has combined digital and cloud expertise to bring efficiency and next generation user experiences to their customers. Idemia has launched a new product called Case Aphis. It's a portable latent print examination tool supported by the full power of Idemia's flagship MBIS matching algorithms. It's a totally standalone Aphis system, doesn't need to connect to your main Aphis or internet, no security firewall, sieges permissions. It's a standalone tool for your cases. You can search latents from crime scenes against a specific set of knowns for that case, and it allows you to quickly and efficiently work these cases and reduce erroneous exclusions. Learn more about Idemia and Case Aphis by contacting us at info.usa at idemia, that's I-D-E-M-I-A, dot com. Solve your cases faster today with Case Aphis. Now, Henry, please continue. Sure. So, so I'm going to re- state it another way. So there's a question of repeatability and reproducibility of the feature markup, essentially. Yes. So the, let's start with the re. Let's start with the. To repeat- use the, the scientific terms, I guess. You know, if you want to. So let's start with the repeatability. The question is, if I give if I give Eric you an impression and I tell you I want you to mark up uh, a set of features, you'll do that. And then let's say I totally erase all those features and I ask you to mark up the very same features again. The the proposal is is that the exact same pixel coordinate location of where you mark the the feature, you unlikely you'll mark it every feature in the exact same location. Yeah, not gonna happen. So the question is, will that impact the score? And the answer in the turn in the context of how FRStat works is yes, it will. Then the next question is, well, how much? And herein lies just the general question of any statistician because we're taking another measurement and this is we have to characterize the uncertainty of that variability. So what we've done is in the, in the development of the software, we actually did studies of having analysts mark up the same features. We erased it, mark up the same features, erased it, mark up the same features over and over and over again. And we were able to characterize what is the general variability that analysts have when they mark up the same features multiple times on multiple days. And then we took that data and then modeled that data. So behind the scenes of FRStat, there's actually a vari- um, an annotation variability model that truly is a random process. You, I can't predict it. So it's a random process that every time you, mark a, you, you run a print through FRStat, it's going to take, it says, I see the, the XY coordinates and the angles you marked. I'm going to measure the similarity there. And then I'm going to repeat the algorithm over and over and over again. It does it a hundred times. And then I now the system in the background has a hundred similarity scores and it calculates what is the average similarity score and what is the um, essentially what are the bounds of the ninety nine percent confidence interval and what you what actually spits out is the lower bound of that ninety nine percent confidence interval for mm-hmm. the mean value. Well, again, went with a conservative the most conservative approach. Again, a, a, a conservative approach for the repeatability. Now 
The other question is reproducibility. If Eric, you mark a set of features on an impression, and Glenn, you mark uh, a half different set, half as many, <laughs> or Very a good. different set. If you watched the video with, uh, that we did uh, from the extra content, <laughs> yeah, you'd see that. So that's, that's an important thing to also keep in mind. So let's pretend for the sake of argument but that both of you guys marked 10 features, let's say. Right. But your 10 may have had some that overlapped with his, but not all the same. Right. You, you may, likely so, will get a different result. The thing is to keep in mind that the result was taken from a measurement of uh, a component of that impression. And therefore, it's, it's okay that you're going to see a different result. Now, with that in mind, the question is, well, how variable would that result be? There's the, the, the technical documentation runs this thousands of times, and it shows that the variability, you, the, the extent of reasonable variability you might expect to see uh, from same source impressions particularly is for which the system was designed to do will lie somewhere in the bounds of the, prob- of the distribution of similarity scores from same source impressions. So we've characterized what is the variability that one might expect to see from repeatability, and we've characterized what is the variability one might expect to see from reproducibility. So essentially, when you mark it up, that's not just the markup. The system is designed to basically do a hundred random markups with all the dots wiggle around a little bit. I'm assuming the directions of the tails wiggle a little bit too. Yep, we characterized that too. We thought right. that would be easier versus in a procedure having you reannotate the same feature a hundred times. We thought you'd appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then, it is. Uh, so then your markup and all the other ones that are also in there just randomly. Uh, it kind of all just averages out. So if one of them happened to give a really high score, one of them had to be a really low score, it all just kind of averages out. And you, the final similarity score that you get is like is the lower bound. Of the 99% confidence interval for the mean. Yep. Yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah it's the a, math stuff. It's the uh, same procedure. Conservative number. Yeah, it's a, it's a more <laughs> conservative number output. And it's, just, it's the very same procedure. It just follows... It's just like we're taking a measurement a hundred times, and then we don't know the true value of the measurement. We'll never know the true value. So what we can do is we propose to provide the the conservative side of that uh, of the confidence interval. Now that the model is deployed and <laughs> is being good, used good by Army. <laughs> by Army Crime Lab, although they're not called Army Crime Lab, but how how is it going in court? They're using they're using it in court, and what's the what what's the environment like? Sure. So. So, so some listeners may know. In March 2017 was the uh, actually January of 2017 we started a soft launch, what we called, it, and that's essentially just a pseudo operational evaluation. How's it going to go? We have our draft set of procedures. Is is the uh, our operations going to shut down with this with this added piece to the method and so forth? Uh, in March 2017, we did our hard launch, and that essentially means that was the first time we reported. And we chose to report the result of the probability ratio as the output. We've been talking a lot about the score, but one piece that we didn't really dive into is that score is converted into what is the probability of observing this score or lower among the same source impressions, and what is the probability of observing this score or higher among different source impressions. We combine that to what we refer to as a probability ratio, which gives some indication of the, uh, of the significance of that evidence. Right. We report that probability ratio. Uh, in simple terms, big score is good, low score is bad. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yep. Score above one provides some support for the proposition from same source. That sounds like a likelihood ratio, but it's actually not from a technical standpoint. Right. Bigger score, stronger evidence. Yeah. Right. Okay. 
So, all right, so now they're going to court with it. Yep. And? Yep, in February. The sky, the sky fell, the earth opened up. Yeah, and, yeah, you brought that courtroom to Arizona, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, the first court case, Fort um, uh, Huachuca. Fort Huachuca. I, I always mispronounce it. Fort Huachuca in Arizona was the first um, a military court-martial for which um, it happened to go to court using where we used FR stat and reported a statistic. It went over like any other court case. Right. Essentially, the the we 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 taught the attorneys. Uh, we were open to both sides of how to what does this mean and so forth. Uh, the examiner testified, and they they asked a, a few questions, but they focused very little on uh, on that. They so yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. Yeah. So I mean, no no full Dobbert challenge has happened yet. I mean, although if if it were to happen, we're confident it will continue to go um, uh, to be perfectly fine in in litigation. But uh, yeah, so this guy did not fall. <laughs> So, how often have you been accused of destroying this profession? <laughs> well, okay, so last week, just a little context, Cedric described how he took some, one of some of his initial research in 2006, six, or seven, five, or, something like that, yeah. was presenting at a conference in Scotland and literally got booed off the stage. Well, not booed off the off, stage, but just on the booed stage. in his dad. <laughs> Right. So, and then before that, Christoph Shampo was literally called the Antichrist and, again, uh, ruining the profession. And uh, I've, I've heard some folks say some nasty things about you. Well, well, that's the benefit of being hearing impaired. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, no, it's, it's you know... I, I knew I underestimated the the response. Um, really, I am kind of shocked. I, mean, I, I, I thought you I lived in my silo. No, I lived in my silo world. I understand. I underestimated some of the. I underestimated some of the responses I should put it. Um, how personal it can get. It, yeah, to an extent, how personal. But then, it, it was it was just across a broad spectrum. I've had. I've also had some um, some some people say I've, I've I've questioned the very same things and thank you. Because I, I find myself super nervous every time I go to court because if I, at the end of the day, I don't have that thing to point to. Yeah. So thank you. So I've really appreciated those. And then I've had the opposite where they said, Henry, I, I like you as a person, but I don't agree with the direction you're going. So it's been great because it, it's caused me to continue to reflect on the path that I think is is appropriate. And there's no right or wrong. And I believe um, this will. This was all created to benefit the profession, and I believe it will. And I think over time, this is a cultural revolution that we're going through, essentially. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's pretty fair. And it's, it's hard for people. And I think what, what you're going to see happening more and more as uh, more, more cases and more uses of the model is that the agencies that have no clue, I mean, have no clue about any of this stuff and have resisted learning about it, they're not even accredited. At some point, they're going to get asked, why aren't you using a model? Where's your model? Why aren't you using FR stat? And, and then that's where the hostility comes out is, well, we don't even know what that crap is, and that doesn't apply to us. And that's some research guy in an Army crime lab, and he doesn't have to tell, and he's not telling us what to do. And I, and I think that's where these other agencies that aren't trained, prepared, ready for it are suddenly having to answer for it, and, and that's where some of the hostility comes from. Yeah, and and I and I understand that, and and hence why we from the very beginning we this was this was not a venture in a commercial marketplace. This was we've invested a considerable all everyone on that team invested a considerable amount of time yeah. for the sole purpose of helping provide the profession with a tool 
to fill what we believe to be gaps. We think fiction rigid evidence is, is foundationally very, very sound, yeah. um, foundationally valid. Um, but the question is, how can we demonstrate for consumers of our evidence um, that we've reliably applied the methods for this particular case? How can we provide some sort of tangible empirical substantiation? And with that, I make no claim that the model is perfect. No model is perfect for that matter, but it does provide a step in what we believe to be the right direction yeah. and arms the analyst with the tool. We expect over time that we'll continue, if we continue to move in this direction, which I don't see any other direction to move into, when I say that is moving towards a, a direction of empirical substantiation, whether FRSTAT is a tool, whether um, the, the tools that, that Cedric Newman has done, whether the tools they're doing over in University of Lausanne, we're moving in a general direction of empirical substantiation. And right. my hope is that we're going to have um, uh, different options to choose to and that will suit our operations. But at the end of the day, it helps the profession by allowing our analysts to point to something to substantiate. Why did you form the opinion that you did? Well said. Now, just as as we sort of close things out here, now big news is you're not with the Army Crime Lab anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, uh, as I started this, I said, "I'm uh, <laughs> who am I? I? I have no other better answer than to say I'm an intellectually curious person." And um, an opportunity uh, uh, came to. Uh, I was presented with an opportunity that that I would be a fool to turn down, and so I. I, it was a tough decision, but I went ahead and accepted a position with a um, an organization up in the, the Washington, D.C. area that provides a lot of support to our intelligence community. And this organization is um, was actually created. It's a non-government organization that was actually created by oh, the it government. It sounded so much like the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a non-government entity that was created by a government entity for the sole purpose of being their strategic investor for the intelligence community. So mm-hmm. uh, essentially we are, this company uh, does extremely well to evaluate the landscape of innovative technologies that are emerging and um, this company will assist those those emerging startup companies to accelerate the development of technology oh, cool. that will feed back into our intelligence community and help keep our nation safe. So it's a very it's not it's not forensic is, is sometimes a very small component of it, but I'm like a kid in a candy store. Yeah. I mean, the exposure to some of this stuff is phenomenal, and I'm still very close to. Uh, the mission of just kind of like public safety and security and so forth. Yeah, it's like Think Tank, Sandbox, and Shark Tank all together. All in one. Yeah. All in one. No, that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. No, that's 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 very, very cool. How did Tony take the news when you left Army Crime Lab? <laughs> I it, lo- it, is, is he living? Is he, is he surviving day to day? I have an incredible amount of relationships that I, I miss the people down there so much. I miss them. And they're, they're a really good group of people. And no, my gosh, they're... I mean, they're they're so courageous. Also, by they didn't oust me. They thought about it, but yeah. they didn't oust me. <laughs> no, inside joke for those that know uh, you and Tony and the, those guys down there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, Henry, thank you so very much for for coming on, uh, talking about your your model, explaining kind of the basis for it and. And the reasons why you made all these decisions on on this uh, on this path that you've been on, and, and 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 by yourself too. I mean, I know you had a team, but you really did a lot of this work by yourself. The the model part, the modeling, the data, the testing. I mean, that's that's really commendable. I mean, that's actually really 
because they suck at math, I find that very impressive. <laughs> well, I, I thank you, but yeah, there was a, a lot of important contributions from everybody, especially in kind of what, what's the what's the way to do about this. And it's and it's interesting because when you start dabbling in the world of statistics, there there is no right or wrong. There's you propose a certain thing and you make an argument and you and you test and you evaluate and is that a valid proposal to make? Yeah. Yeah, no, well said. It's it's been a pleasure having you uh, on the show, and and well, geez, I I meant to even ask you about uh, uh, OSAC and the meetings here, but we're gonna have to to save all those questions for for another episode. Um, if it's another little, you know, just tiny little thing that you you've been up to over the past few years. Uh, the reason why we're all here together with with OSAC, but yeah, sure, happy to do so. And and might I say, I'm I'm you know I'm, I sincerely appreciate you all's interest and 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 the listeners' interest in this information. If there's anything that I can do to follow up, feel free, I'm happy to do so. Um, so if yeah, Henry, if, if people want to contact you, they can con- they can send emails to us. Uh, uh, our you know Glenn and I, we've given our email addresses every episode: Glenn at eliteforensicservices dot com, Eric at rayforensics.com. We can pass those messages along to Henry uh, uh, if you Including want. Including the hate mail. Yeah. <laughs> the death threats. Uh, I, I've come to enjoy those, though. <laughs> they are fun, aren't they? Or if you're just interested in getting a copy of the model to play with and test with at your agency. Uh, this is my. This is where I get angry. No, not angry, but well, no, you can. We, we can. Glenn and I can point you in the right direction of who to contact at the Army Crime Lab to as to, long to as do you that. work for a government entity. That's oh, okay. I get, I get what you're saying. Yes, yeah. right, right now, Henry. The the Army Crime Lab is limiting access to uh, to government organizations, agencies that have filled out all the paperwork that the gov- that the Army needs you to fill out. Yeah. So so the the government is attempting to find a way that that makes this widely available for the for the community. But there's some some nuances to that. And one of the things that they need to do is they need to decide internally how they. What is the strategy of protecting the intellectual property um, such that they can have a uh, – do they license it to a commercial entity to to build upon it and take it? Or do they release this in some sort of open source license or public domain? That one, that one. Um, and I, and I've you know there's there's different there's different pros and cons with the different strategies, but I I defer um, to the to the government to make the the the, de- the decision that they think is best for the r- broader community. But in that in that time they have Which to. They are known for doing. Within that time, they need there is a uh, they needed to limit the distribution of it to. Uh, at that time, they decided U.S. based uh, government entities. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I mean the the model we've we is is at the hands of the Army Crime Lab at the moment. Yeah. No, I know. I'm, I'm just well, I'm poking. Yeah. At least, uh, you know, uh, unlike what we were talking about with Cedric last time, you know, it hasn't at this point yet been put into a box in a warehouse for top men to review. Next to the lost <laughs> Ark of the right. Covenant. Right. And that is the metric of success. Right, right. <laughs> so for listeners out there, uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Double Loop Pod. I already mentioned our uh, email addresses. Uh, you can also uh, give us reviews, ratings uh, on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever app or service you use to listen to this podcast. Ratings and reviews are definitely appreciated. And also consider contributing to uh, our little project here with either volunteer work now or uh, as a, uh, a money sponsor at patreon.com slash podcast. Uh, remember, the opinions expressed here on the show are those of the speaker and not of anyone else. 
And uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.